Hey everybody, this is Keith Robine from Kootenai Avalanche Courses. I'm an avalanche educator in beautiful Roslyn, British Columbia. You are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. When groups communicate well, um, they make better decisions. You know, we'll probably look back in 20 years on this time period in our conversation and go, man, they were just so clueless. <laughs> uh, hello again, listeners. Wes Gregg here, your third Thursday host on the Avalanche Hour podcast. We're proudly supported by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside with additional support from InterWest Insurance. So here we are into my third interview. I have to say a big thanks to Caleb for the amazing support in this journey so far. And a huge thanks to those of you who have left some positive feedback regarding my contributions. I have some great content in the bank and only two more interviews left to fill the season. Over the last week, I've learned some valuable and humbling lessons regarding being a podcaster and trying to maintain an open conversation with the community regarding experiences, a great deal of work and empathy needs to be exercised. Discussing our experiences in the backcountry is a lot like decision-making in the backcountry. There are a great deal of human factors involved and they all need to be considered. My guest this week is no stranger to exploring these concepts. Keith has over 30 years experience in avalanche education. He most recently finalized the new curriculum for the Avalanche Canada AST2 courses. He is the co-author of the Avalanche Skills Training Handbook and has also published papers regarding innovative ways to include human behavior in avalanche decision making. So please enjoy my conversation with Keith Robine. All right. Yeah, good. So to start, I'll get you to introduce yourself and tell me a little bit more about your background and uh, what your certifications are and, and what it is that you do. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, my name's Keith Robine. I'm a avalanche professional in British Columbia. I um, do some guiding as well, uh, but I'm pretty focused on avalanche education and uh, been doing this for about 30 years. I started in Colorado and uh, moved up here 23 or so years ago. Uh, and uh, yeah, teach the avalanche education to recreationists uh, in mostly BC. Um, there's a couple different levels of it. There's AST1 is the intro level, and then the AST2 is the more advanced uh, intermediate advanced course. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've been involved with um, uh, a book that we wrote, um, James Florian and I wrote in 2018. Uh, it's called the Avalanche Skills Training Handbook. Yeah. Uh, and it basically serves as a, um, a textbook for the Avalanche Skills Training courses. Yeah, no, great. Yeah, no, I know the book. I, I have it from, uh, oh, cool. from, from our time doing the courses. That's amazing. And then uh, so it sounds like you're originally from the States. I, I, I did a little bit of research here and it sounds like you, you started off as a, or an engineer. Is that correct? 
Oh yeah, a couple lifetimes ago, uh, I was <laughs> I was involved in uh, uh, environmental engineering. Yeah, know, and I got a master's degree and worked for a short time there. And yeah, kind of branched into a lot of different fields. Uh, still, still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. I guess. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> <laughs> and then so. Whereabouts did you start skiing and how did that all come into fruition and, and maybe take us a little bit through your progression from just a recreationalist and then and into that mm. final crux moment when you decided to pursue it as a career? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I wasn't a super early uh, starter. My, my, my kids uh, who, are, who are now young adults uh, got started when they were two. Uh, yeah. but I didn't start till I was 20 and, uh, um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll digress for a second. And, and just, it, it was interesting. I, I went up, uh, I was living in, uh, Boston going to university and, and I had a car and I, I drove up to a place called Waterville Valley and, and took a, a lesson, uh, cross country skiing and, and just started skiing around. And it was my first day on skis. Uh, wow. So it was pretty late in life, I thought. Uh, and driving home, this is when I used to still go to McDonald's. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I got off in Concord, New Hampshire, and, and, I, and I took this ramp off the interstate, and it went down underneath this railroad bridge. And then there was like a steep hill on the other side. And, and I started driving up the hill, uh, heading toward McDonald's. And all of a sudden, instead of driving, I was back on my skis in, in my whole body. I was herringboning up the hill. And it was this like weird out-of-body experience. I hadn't had anything to you know, drink or anything. <laughs> and uh, uh, I just thought it was the coolest thing. And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, I mean, I'd had a great day. But it was at that moment that I realized, oh, man, skiing is, is happening. It's, it's where it's at. Um, yeah. and, and it was just kind of a wild thing that launched me in, but, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I focused on Nordic skiing a lot when I was uh, younger and got into coaching and racing yeah. and that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, I was involved in outdoor leadership program in Colorado, um, or at age around 30 and, uh, uh, yeah, it was a year long program and rock climbing instruction and, you know, got me ready to teach avalanche education. That was kind of an initial step. Uh, to getting in there and backcountry yeah. skiing. And yeah, I just haven't really looked back since then. Um, you know, it was out today. We got a really nice dump of about you know, 25 centimeters. And uh, we went over to the Nordic trails and they hadn't groomed or anything. So we were just breaking trail through a lot of snow. Yeah. And on the, on the downhills, I, I was skiing down on my little Nordic skis, but, <laughs> but still the snow was billowing up, you know, coming up over my knees and I was like, Oh my God, skiing. It's just, there's just nothing like it. You know, I, I just love that feeling. It, I and, mean, uh, it, it always beats sitting behind a desk. That's for certain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm yeah, just as passionate as, as I've ever been. And oh. um, yeah. And, and the avalanche education part is, it, it's just so interesting and uh, yeah, I've been getting to work. I mean, I've been breathing avalanche stuff all summer. Um, it's actually been like a 17 months project 
doing um, new curriculum for the AST2 course. Right. And uh, yeah, I've been working with a review committee and um, yeah, really excited to, we're, we're still on the final stages, but trying to get it ready for this coming season. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just how to, how to explain it in a way that makes sense, how to explain it in a way that is simple enough for people to really grasp it. You know, like there's, there's, there's just so much to it. There's so much to avalanche education, so much to terrain, so much to snowpack. Um, and yet there are ways to try to structure it so that you can really make some solid decisions based on, you know, what's happening in the snowpack and then choosing appropriate terrain for those conditions. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a simple way of doing it, but it really, it's, it's, that's what it comes down to is, you know, choosing the right terrain for the, for the conditions. And, yeah, yeah anyway. absolutely. Absolutely. Now, now talk about an epiphany, like at 20 years old to come in and say, you know what, skiing is where it's at. So <laughs> that's amazing. So at, so at that point, your life basically pivoted from what you were doing and then and did is that when you started to kind of shift into focusing a, a change of career and and building a, a a repertoire in 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 America and then how was that transition from the states and then up into Canada when when did that all occur and yeah that was uh yeah a long time ago uh, about 23 years ago or so Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I met a woman up here and, and uh, on, a, on a ski trip <laughs> at a backcountry lodge. And, Perfect. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, and uh, yeah, it made sense. You know, we, we went back and forth a little bit between Colorado and BC, but it, it was a no brainer in terms of deciding. Um, it, it was just, uh, yeah, it was really something up here, especially I'm uh, from this area called the Kootenays. And it, it's just that, that right, you know, people talk about Utah being the greatest snow on earth. And somebody wrote a, a book about the, the meteorology about Utah. And, and they mentioned, and eh, there's a couple other places on the planet that are similar. And, you know, in our area, that uh, <laughs> Columbia Mountains of BC was one of those. So, yeah, we just get that kind of Goldilocks, not too wet, not too dry, um, enough snow, um, you know, a mix of avalanche conditions. It, it, it really, um, it's great because sometimes it gets super stable in the middle of winter and sometimes it's, it's super dicey. And yeah. it's, yeah. it's really, um, you got to be really nimble here because uh, it can change. And uh, yeah, in the course of a day or two, you can really shift uh, the, the avalanche stability. So, so you just have to have a lot of different terrain that, that you call, you know, your, your, your maybe back pocket terrain that Mm -hmm. you can go to when things get dicey. And then, uh, other times it's like, Whoa, it's time to start getting into some of these more, uh, serious objectives. Yeah. Get, get after it. Yeah. 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 I learned, uh, early on that, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, I'll just wait a little bit and, you know, <laughs> let's see what happens over the next few days. And, and, uh, and so many times I got burned going, oh, now it's not quite right. It's, yeah, I've missed my opportunity. So, so yeah, I mean, as an avalanche educator, obviously you, you, you try to steer people toward 
as I said, choosing the right terrain and being conservative. But but then there's times when it's go. And yeah. and I, I say to students, I say, you know, when when the stability really comes down, um, that might be your opportunity. And and you know, take advantage of the times when it's really stable uh, to use to get to your objectives. Because then when it starts to get worse again, it, 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 the, you missed your chance. So, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the window's yeah. not there. Yeah. It'll come back. But. It'll it always <laughs> inevitably comes back. You might have to wait a while. <laughs> <laughs> that's always the that's always the thing. Now, n- talking about identifying avalanche terrain and and re- teaching recreational users, I mean that is such a that's the path that that I'm beginning my pursuit on, and I have such a fascination with with exactly that and and trying to understand what's the best way for new users or even experienced recreationalists in the backcountry to really be able to make those choices. Now, with you saying that you've, you've been working on this new curriculum, I'm, I'm really fascinated to hear on, on the new changes that may be coming forward in order to help people moving out of their AST1. And, and for those of us that are in Canada, the, that's the Avalanche Skills Training Level 1, which is offered by Avalanche Canada. Um, and that that course focuses on terrain identification, correct? Well, that course is, it's it's really the way I explain it is it's, it's part one of a two-part course. Mm-hmm. AST1 is part one, AST2 is part two. And, you know, sure, some people, they, they stop their education after the AST1. And, and, um, but really, I, I, I believe, and I think a lot of other instructors believe that, that to complete the program, you do both parts. Um, you don't do them like right away, one after the other, because I think you need time in the backcountry to really start using the skills that you learn in the AST1. Yeah, uh, and then I, I kind of recommend like 20, 30 days even, um, and and then when you come into the AST two, you've got that background. Your brain is has some of the. So I also work in the field of psychology uh, part time, <laughs> and uh, so your brain has these pathways that have been established every time you go out into the backcountry and you think about terrain, you think about the snowpack. And you need to establish those pathways to then start to deal with the, the more advanced concepts that you know you you want to learn about that's taught in an AST two course. So so you really do yourself a disservice if you don't if you haven't established that. Um, yeah, but you know, back to your question uh, about you know what what's important about the new curriculum it's really just an extension of of so many changes that have been going on in avalanche education over the last i don't know 20 30 years i I mean um i guess we got a minute or two i'll go all the way back to when i was doing avalanche education in colorado and and at that time you know, lots of people were on uh, narrow skis and mm-hmm. yeah. long skis, and um, and in the Colorado snowpack, uh, you know, there's lots of depth hoar and 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 pretty tricky avalanche conditions for a good part of the winter. And and I remember that really the 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 mantra of avalanche education was just avoid avalanche terrain yeah. in the winter, and then 
go there when we start to get into enough freeze-thaw cycles in the spring. And then, boom, you know, it's game on. Um, but we didn't really go into that much uh, steep avalanche terrain in midwinter. Plus, you know, we were on, like, telemark skis, and nobody <laughs> really wanted to ski anything that steep yeah. in the middle of winter, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but it, it just it, it was interesting because then when I came up here, and this was, like, in the late 90s, um, people were already getting after it in, in steeper terrain. It was a different snowpack. Yeah. And, uh, and I was blown away. I remember the first time, you know, backcountry skiing outside of uh, Whitewater Ski Area in Nelson. And uh, I was like, with these people, and really? Like, are you guys sure about this? Because this is really steep. <laughs> and uh, it was January. And they were like, yeah, sure. Like, this is what we do all the time, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so that was, um, yeah, that was really eye-opening to see people uh, getting into steep terrain. And, um, but anyway, getting back to the whole thing about avalanche education, another cool, interesting story, I think, is that when I started teaching up here, um, students came into my courses saying, yeah, I'm in your class. My friends were saying, you know, eh, what do you want to take an avalanche course for? The instructor's <laughs> just going to tell you that it's, you know, not safe and you shouldn't go there. And um, that wasn't really my philosophy, but I guess, you know, enough other people were saying that, that that was sort of the public perception. Yeah. And, um, and I heard it a lot. Um, so this is like late 90s, early 2000. But, oh my God, how that has shifted Wes, because uh, now, most of the time when I ask people at the beginning of the course, why are you here? They're like, well, my friend said that I can't ski tour with them until I take my AST course. And, and wow, what a, that, I mean, that's a big change. And a positive the change. The way people see it. Yes. Yeah, like such so. a positive change. And, and I mean, living up here in, in the Caribou, there still is some of that, that stigma behind yeah. behind taking courses where people are like, well, I'm not taking a course. I'm not going to ski in avalanche terrain. And then being around some people that um, sometimes you don't even know you're in avalanche terrain. And if you don't have the base that you would get, say, from an AST1 course or being around other people that are more skilled in the backcountry, you wouldn't even have an idea that you're entering avalanche terrain. And and I think that's it's so great to see that change. It's it's great to see that you're noticing that as an as a as an instructor. I mean, it's it's such a positive change, and uh, it can only go further. Well, I mean, people have been scratching their heads. I think in the avalanche field, and this is a positive thing that I'm going to say, uh, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, so I don't think it's too controversial. I don't mind a little controversy, but, um, you know, why is it that, uh, the number of people that die in avalanches hasn't been, hasn't gone up with the number, huge number of more people in the backcountry? And, yeah. and I, what I see is that, and it's not just avalanche education, but just backcountry skiers in general, they're just more savvy. They are so interested in this stuff, avalanche education and, and just learning about it. It's so interesting and people get interested in it and, and, and they, they're savvy. They, and, you know, the, our avalanche forecasts are, are, I think, a lot better than they used to be. Here's yeah. another maybe controversial thing, but I think it's recognized that avalanche forecasts 
have also changed, I think, um, with some of these shifts that I was describing earlier in the way that people perceive, you know, yeah. avalanche education. And I think they used to be more conservative. Oh. You know, there, the, it would stay at considerable for, you know, probably too many days after, you know, things were starting to improve in stability. Uh, whereas now, I, I think the avalanche forecast and the forecasters, I mean, they try to nail it every single day. Now, I mean, it's, they're human and, yeah. and weather forecasts are sometimes <laughs> wrong. So they don't nail it every day, but I think they nail it pretty close. So we were talking about, you know, the, the shift in culture. And I, I was trying to get to some of the changes that's happened with regards to avalanche education in Canada. And, and really, you know, it, it's not that we've come up with anything great recently, um, it, it's a, it's been a progression of great ideas and um, and and systems uh, for decision making that have been structured uh, over over quite a few years now. Like uh, so, I mean, if people are familiar with something called the evaluator, uh, that's that's been an amazingly robust tool that has stood the test of time, uh, and the the. The main kind of aspect of it, there's two parts of it, but the part that's really stood up is called the trip planner. And it, it's just based on some really simple, uh, it's like a simple grid that's three by three. Well, no, it's not three by three, I guess. It's, it's really more five by three because there's five levels of the danger scale. But I guess I think of it as three by three um, because you know, low and moderate danger is sort of treated the same way. Then there's considerable danger and then high and extreme. They're, they're kind of treated the same way. And, and there's even been some talk about, you know, wow, do we really need extreme danger? We, we hardly ever get there on the bulletin. Um, and, and is that useful? So, so anyway, that's why I kind of think a low moderate is one considerable is the middle and then high extreme is the upper end. And, and then in terms of terrain, there's, there's three levels of terrain, simple, challenging, and complex. And, and so with that three by three grid, it's a pretty straightforward way to choose the right terrain for the conditions, what we were talking about before. So when it's you know, high danger, uh, basically, I mean, you know, people that are familiar with with what that means is that, well, there's a lot of avalanches that are likely gonna happen, uh, natural avalanches, human triggered avalanches. It's just, you know, not the time to be venturing mm -hmm. into any sort of scary avalanche terrain. Um, and then at low to moderate danger, you've got the sort of other end of the spectrum and, and that's the time when theoretically it might be safe. Now it's not that everything is safe. We, you know, we predict things, nature is nature. And she's always going to surprise us. And so in, in moderate danger, it's still possible to uh, get into trouble. Um, but it's, it's the time period where um, if you are going to go into avalanche terrain uh, and serious avalanche terrain, that's, that's time to go. Yeah. Um, and then considerable is that time in the middle. And it's, it's really the most tricky of, of all the danger levels because um, it's a, it's like I said, in the middle and, you know, we have to make decisions about where are we going to go? And, and so for me, you know, considerable danger is, is a time to, yeah, maybe venture into some places that are avalanche terrain, but I'm basically avoiding places that are going to really uh, hurt me or kill me. 
And, uh, and so, you know, sometimes it's small features, you know, a little bit of a drop here and there, um, you know, where there's potential for small avalanches and, and, you know, where I'm not going to get worked through a bunch of trees and that sort of thing. And so, um, so, so this trip planner kind of gives you direction as to, you know, green light, red light, and then there's sort of like an in-between yellow light and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and like I said, that has stood the test of time. And I, I think it's, it's what sets Canada apart, you know, and I'm not trying to diss the U.S. Oh, my God, you know, so many <laughs> yeah. highly respected people there who are teaching avalanche education and all a lot of the, you know, Bruce Tremper books and the, the Jill uh, 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 Fredston, Doug Fessler. Yeah, I mean, these are, these are, the, these are the most amazing uh, pieces of avalanche education that, you know, that I've seen. Um, uh, but yeah, somehow Canada uh, got into this trip planner idea and it's just a way to structure the decision making. And so then I mentioned that, you know, we did this book uh, in 2018 and, and it's really an extension of that. It's a way to, you know, put this into even more of like, a, okay, what are the steps? And it includes all the steps that basically you go through when you go into the backcountry. So the seven steps and it's called the daily process. And, um, you know, so it starts with getting the avalanche forecast and then planning your trip and dealing with equipment and the group that you're going with. And then you go and, you know, you look for what's happening in, in, in terms of weather and verifying, uh, you know, how much did it really snow and, and what do we see out in the terrain and, and uh, what are the travel practices that we're going to use in order to, you know, keep ourselves safe, reduce our risk. And, uh, and then looking at slopes, you know, what are we going to uh, avoid and what are we willing to ride today? Um, and, uh, and then reflecting on that whole experience at the end. And um, yeah, that's, that's what, you know, you talk to people and as I said, people are savvy. That's, that's kind of what they do. So it's just sort of giving it some structure so that people can, you know, go through their heads. All right. Yeah, this is what we're doing. This is the next step and feel like they have a plan yeah. because I, I mean, and I remember when I first started going out, it's like, wow, you know, I mean, I, I know some stuff about avalanches. I know things about the snowpack. I know you can dig pits, but wow, when it really comes down to making a decision, it seems like it's a bit of a sort of flip of the coin and well, sure. And you know, so much had to do with group dynamics and, you know, is the group sort of that kind of cautious group or is it like, yeah, let's go for it group. Yeah, and, and that yeah. seemed to be more about how we made decisions than, you know, really w w what's happening in terms of the snowpack. And, and, uh, so yeah, like I said, people are savvy. They, they, uh, they consult the avalanche forecast. They know what to look for when they see avalanche signs of avalanches, that that's obviously a, <laughs> a good sign that things are unstable. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, so somehow, you know, the, the fatalities has flattened out um, and, uh, and we're not seeing, uh, you know, a huge number of, of fatalities, even though there's, there's so many more people and, uh, yeah, people are on it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just cool to be part of, of, of that culture and, and yeah. to get to contribute in a way of, of trying to advance it. Yeah. And that's what the AST2 curriculum is about is, you know, trying to really put some structure into 
uh, you know, what are the more intermediate to advanced things that we're um, bringing into decision making? And it builds on uh, the evaluator, it builds on the daily process. And really, we're trying to look at risk, you know, how risk, how, how much risk uh, one are we willing to take? And, and how do we um, manage that risk. So when we're out in terrain, we actually know, okay, well, this is more risky because rather than, well, it looks good. And so, you know, that bringing together the snowpack and people and terrain, mm-hmm. um, bringing those three things together uh, is something that we do um, with, with some planning and, and with some ideas as to why we're, we're riding a certain slope on a certain day. Um, you know, we're still going to make mistakes, uh, but I think through that structure, you know, we can, we can build something where we've got, uh, you know, a good system and, and, and good chance for success. Yeah. It sounds like you guys are really building on trying to make that flow from the AST one, like you had mentioned, uh, previously that it's, it's basically almost like a two chapter story where you, you know, you're going to start with your AST1, which is going to give you your foundation, and then you're not really finished until you do at least your AST2. Uh, from my perspective, I, you know, I find it very interesting that, that you do have a background in psychology. And, and, and from, from my experience um, over the years, um, some of them humbling, uh, any of the incidents that I've been involved in or that I've, I've witnessed or anything like that, it, it always comes down to that human factor. And it almost seems like that's a whole other segment that that's difficult to cover within the AST2. Um, so are, are, have you guys tried to start working that more into it, like that human factor mm-hmm. and starting to build that, that communication between your partners because that can be such a huge factor in whether or not yeah. something happens? That's a great question, Wes. And, and I think that, uh, you know, we'll probably look back in 20 years on, on you know, this time period in our conversation and go, <laughs> man, they were just so clueless. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's true with regards to psychology in general, you know, like yeah. the field of brain science is really interesting and there's technology that's helping us learn so many things about the brain to try to explain, you know, people, decisions, crazy. Like, <laughs> why do people think the way they do and act the way they do? And, yeah. and so, so we're still, I think we're still a long way from figuring any of that out. But <laughs> with regards to avalanches, um, we've been involved with this idea that, yeah, you know, looking at accidents, like you said, Wes, uh, gosh, it really comes down to, so like this series of decisions that were made and then why did people do that? And in retrospect, it's so easy to say, what were they thinking? Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet when you're in this situation, you you know that it just happens. It just happens when you're out there. And um, so, yeah, it's challenging to teach that. And, and we're, we've been looking for ways to do it. When we, we redid the AST one curriculum in 2015, and, and we really tried to bring this idea of human decision-making into, uh, into that curriculum. Uh, in, the, in the AST handbook, which really led to, I think, uh, a lot of the 
uh, information that's helping with this AST2 curriculum update, which is happening here in 2020, uh, it's, uh, it's tough. The, the original work on human factors was linking what were the mistakes that people made that led to fatalities. And again, in, in retrospect, it's easy to see those links. It's like, wow, okay, they were maybe really familiar with the terrain <clears throat> or they didn't, uh, they didn't really communicate. They thought that, oh, somebody else in the group is smarter than me. So if they're not speaking up, then, you know, I'm not going to speak up. Mm -hmm. and, and it's those kinds of things. And yet teaching that, teaching the mistakes that people make doesn't seem to... Um, make them act better. <laughs> and, so, and so the approach that, that we've taken is, okay, well, what are the things that we do want people to do? Or what are the things that we've seen does work in terms mm -hmm. of uh, a, a backcountry group and, and, and what helps people when they're out there? And so we came up with in, in, the, in the handbook with four behaviors that, that seem to make a big difference in terms of groups making good decisions. Yeah. And one is... Uh, uh, patience, you know, uh, so we talked about how, yeah, you know, you go out there and if the conditions aren't right, you got to be patient. You just yeah. can't, you just can't push the terrain you want to ride every day. Um, and communication is a big part. So, so that the ability to talk with your partners and, and, and planning your group, um, is, is such a big deal. Um, on my uh, spacing, the, the last one I'm going to mention is discipline. Uh, but the other one, patience, communication. All right, I'm going to cheat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I freaking wrote the thing and I can't remember because, you know, whatever. I'm just like maybe still waking up. Uh, um, leadership, right? Leadership. You know, and, and this is a really interesting one. I, I've, I've been kind of involved in teaching leadership kinds of um, through activity for a long time. And, and, um, and it's not about, hey, everybody, you know, I know where we're going, follow me. That's not the kind of leadership that we're talking about. The leadership is, it, it can be a, a much more quiet leadership, the person that's in the group that's really listening to what people say, and then might be able to, you know, kind of sum that up or, you know, someone that's in the group and realizes, wow, you know, there's, there's someone else that isn't talking at all, you know, maybe we need to pull them into the conversation because we know that when groups communicate well, um, they make better decisions. Uh, I mean, that doesn't sound like, you know, it involves rocket science to figure that out, but they've actually studied that. Yeah. Um, Montana State uh, has a really good uh, uh, group of, of uh, 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 researchers that, that look into these things. A lot of the human behavior stuff research comes out of there and, and, and yeah, they proved it, you know, if it's evidence-based kind of thing. And uh, yeah, those groups that communicated, you look at how they make decisions. It's just so much more robust. So, uh, so anyway, so that's, that's the kind of thing that, that helps. And then the last one I was going to mention is discipline. Um, and, and that's where, you know, things like uh, trip planning and the daily process and, and using tools to be able to make decisions. Now it sounds like a killjoy, right? It's like, oh my God, here we go. We're gonna talk about the evaluator and we're gonna make these, oh, can't we just go ride? Like it's just, we're having fun, right? Yeah, yeah. But here's, here's the thing that I've learned over time in using these tools for so many years. You know what they do? They enable me to go out 
and ski more rad terrain because mm-hmm. I have the confidence to be able to do it because I know that it's backed up by these decision-making supports. So when I go into terrain, it's not like, oh, well, you know, it should be okay, hopefully. And, you know, you feel kind of half scared. And, you know, I mean, it's good to be a little scared always because there's, <laughs> there's the, you know, nothing certain out there. That's one of the things I think that draws people to the backcountry. Yeah. So many things in life, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, this is going to happen. Um, I mean, it's funny saying that in a world of COVID where, you know, nobody expected this. So, yeah, well, totally. Uh, yeah. Maybe Bill Gates. But, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, there's something about and, – and here's another thing. Um, I'm, I'm rambling a little no, bit. No, that's fine. But it's, it's this it's – this, um, you know, it's interesting to think about the draw. If we're talking about human behavior, like what is the – why do people want to, you know, quote, unquote, risk their life? Uh, for something like this. And, and it's, I think it's our connection with nature. Um, Dolores LaChapelle is, is a, uh, a woman that uh, uh, has passed on, but, but uh, uh, wrote about deep ecology. And it, and it wasn't like sort of keeping us and nature separate. It was the combination of bringing us into the world as a part of the world rather than, oh, you know, we should do things to help the world. It's like, we are part of this, you know, we're part mm-hmm. of this whole big ecosystem we call earth. And, and I think what uh, backcountry skiing does as well as lots of other, you know, outdoor activities, but um, there's something really magical about the snow we were talking about yesterday and, and that, yeah, just getting out there into nature with the snow and, um, and surviving, it, it just taps into something in our brains, you know, and, and maybe it goes back um, uh, many generations, but it, it, it just makes us feel good. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when, the, you're, the when you put it in that we establish, yeah. perspective, like it's very, it seems very primal, right? Like it's that survivalist, yeah, primal, that's a good word. you know, survivalist concept where it's like, we're going to do this thing and we're on our own and we're, we're isolated. I'm very curious about with the AST2 and, and how that's going to progress with regards to getting that message across to users that communication and and teamwork are going to be really at the end of the day what's going to help you have fun and in the event of an incident also help you manage a, a situation in mm-hmm. a controlled manner. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's this great, uh, uh, case study that, that, uh, is on the, there's a great, uh, presentation on the Avalanche Canada website about cherry bowl. And, Mm -hmm. and in that situation, there were guys, um, uh, up in around terrace area, uh, that saved the lives of three people that were buried over a meter and a half each. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, and they got everybody out alive in a huge avalanche, you know, size three and a half or something. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they were like over a kilometer away when the thing happened. And I mean, it's just an amazing story. But what those guys talked about was the only reason that they felt that they were successful was that they take their training seriously 
And mm-hmm. they weren't bragging about it, but they were just being honest. And they said, yeah, you know, two weeks ago, we went through a, a half day of companion rescue practice. And, you know, we got this stuff kind of dialed. And that's what you need if you ever get in a situation like that. You need to have it dialed because then the, talk, the clock is ticking. Uh, there's very little time to be going, okay, what should we do next? You just have to know in your body yeah. what you need to do and you just start doing it. And they all work together uh, so efficiently that three people out, nobody hurt. Uh, it, it's a miracle story, right? Everybody just can't believe it. Yeah, and, um, But it's an inspiration yeah. to remind us that, okay, wow, when we go out and when we practice, even though it's like, yeah, I know how to use my beak and it's not a big deal. Um, it's, it's the, it, it, we remember yesterday we talked a little bit about brain pathways and it's about establishing those brain pathways. And if you haven't practiced it a number of times, when it comes to a stressful situation, like having to dig somebody out, I had to, I had to do that once actually. And I remember, you know, I couldn't think, I couldn't even think. You know, the only reason that it was, you know, that we were able to dig this woman out was because uh, I I just had done it so many times. And I I just, I was like, but I was so stressed that I couldn't think of what to do next. I just had to do it. Yeah. Because when you're in that situation, your brain doesn't, it's not functioning at the same level. Oh, exactly. uh, yeah. And, and the brain scientists have, you know, explained why that is and, you know, it gets back down to, you know, you can't have advanced thinking when you're totally stressed and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, no, that's such a huge anyway. part, right? Like, and we, we're actually, cool. you know, we're going to be doing some drills next week it, we're, and we're going to make them fun, right? It's my buddy's 40th. So we're going to bury some stuff, some gifts, yeah. stuff <laughs> like that. And, and and that's going to be that's going to be the game that's going to be you know the short day you know we'll be back at the cabin <laughs> by dark so there's a lot of time there so but it's funny like in that same concept with the advent of and the more popularity of avalanche bags i've been actually kind of talking to a lot of my friends some that have them and some that don't that i think it's also just as important to practice deploying that bag as it is deploying your shovel probe and, and beacon in the event of an incident. It comes back to brain pathways. And, and I think, you know, what you said as well, Wes, is important is make, make it fun. And, and I mean, that's, that's, I think, what we can bring to, say, an AST2 course. We have a little bit more time mm-hmm. uh, to work with people. It's not that we're going to uh, spend the whole time doing companion rescue, you know, uh, but how do we make those exercises fun and, and, and do it in a way that, you know, so we usually make it into a little bit of a competition against the clock and, mm-hmm. and against each other. And, 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 and people have a good time with that. And, uh, and it also puts a little stress on them, yeah. <laughs> which is, which is exactly what would happen in a real situation. So, so you try to mimic that as, as much as you can. Yeah. And then deeper burials too, you know, that's, that's an important part of, of, uh, of practice is mm-hmm. that, you know, it's one thing to, you know, bury a beacon uh, in, in in 15 centimeters of fluff on the edge of the parking lot and go, okay, I found it. We're good to go. Um, 
it, it's a totally different animal when you're looking for somebody that's buried a meter and a half under the snow. Um, it, it's, it's a lot more difficult to pinpoint exactly where they are and, and then probing them and then all the shoveling. And oh, it's, yeah. So you just, it's, it's not, it's not, it's totally doable, mm-hmm. but it's really hard to do if you haven't practiced it a few times. Um, and so, you know, that's why, we try to get people out early season, you know, practice your skills. Ideally, you know, you do it again, another, uh, at least a couple times during the season so that you can, you know, just feel really honed and, and practice with a deeper snowpack, all those kinds of things. But now, so all of these years that you've spent traveling in the backcountry, is there, a, do you have any, any stories that you'd like to share with the listeners with regards to an experience that perhaps humbled you and changed the way that you approach your traveling and, and uh, your planning in the backcountry? Well, the only thing I could think of to start is, is I was, before we got on this call, we, we, at the beginning, we were talking about a funny story that I had and, uh, so maybe I'll tell it. And I, I mm-hmm. was out uh, ski patrolling at, at Red Mountain and uh, was digging a pit up on uh, back when we had Gray Mountain was was backcountry then. Oh, it was so great when it was backcountry. <laughs> <laughs> it's good now that there's a lift on it too, but oh, it was a really neat place. And uh, anyway, so it was a beautiful day and uh, I'm just doing my thing and I see this guy coming uh, and I can tell, okay, wow, he's he's moving slow. Uh, wow. He's, he's, he's old. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm kind of old too. So I I don't like ageism stuff, but I mean, this guy, you know, it was surprising to see him out in the backcountry. He's on his own. Um, and it it turns out, you know, he's famous Roslyn guy. Uh, I can't remember his name. Belichuk last name. Anyway. Yeah been here skiing a long time anyway he comes up and i'm just super impressed and i'm thinking to myself wow what am i gonna say to this guy because he looked kind of gruff and sure enough you know when i speak to him he answers me real gruff but i did say uh wow this is cool to see you out here i'm, I'm hoping i'll be doing this a long time too uh uh do you mind if i ask how old you are and oh man he was so gruff he said yeah old enough. I don't need those peeps anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there you go. Right. I guess we can look forward to that. You know, when we're, when we're older, maybe we won't have to worry so much about avalanches. (laughs) In his mind, he didn't need to worry about it. (laughs) Oh, my wife's grandfather used to say, well, I don't buy green bananas anymore. <laughs> that's kind of the same thing. Maybe that's the that's the old the old man ski bum mentality. Well, I don't need that peeps anymore. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if that's my uh, secret of uh, avalanche education, but um, one of the things I've learned in terms of recreating as a whole. When I was younger, I was much more self centered, I guess. I mean, I'm still pretty self-centered and selfish <laughs> guy, I guess. But, <laughs> uh, but, but I think what I've at least grown to appreciate more are the people that I'm doing the activity with. 
And, and especially when it comes to whether it's, you know, like say rock climbing and my rock climbing partner or backcountry uh, riding and the, the people that I'm, that I'm out there touring with, um, I'm relying on them and they're relying on me. And, and there's something about that partnership, I think, that also um, is very, very satisfying at the end of the day. Um, and, and so, so I think that's one of the draws. The other part of it though, is that it's made me much more mindful about who I choose to go out with. Whereas it used to be, um, yeah, whatever, I'm just going out. I'm much more thoughtful about, oh, you know, who am I going on this trip with into the mountains? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm always willing to, to, to try different groups, but I'm thoughtful about, okay, if we're going to be going into some serious avalanche terrain, who are the people I want to be with? Yeah. And so, so I kind of plan around the conditions, but I also plan around the, the group. And, um, and, and I, I think that there's something to that. I don't fully understand it, but I, I think we're, we're starting to get a little bit of a handle on um, how important that is. And, uh, yeah, we'll we'll see where it goes. It's it's fun to uh, continue to uh, figure it out and uh, and to to go out there uh, with with different people and yeah, and yeah. check out the experience. Yeah, right on. So now, uh, where where can people find you? They can find you online and on socials. Uh, maybe just uh, let us know where people can get in touch with you if oh, they want to yeah. take a course. Yeah. Or- I- I, I, uh, I'm not very savvy <laughs> speaking of savvy with regards to marketing. Um, I, I do, uh, I do maintain a website. It, it's called Kootenai Avalanche courses.com. Yeah. Right. On. Um, yeah. Right. Cool. We'll put a link down that's, in the show as, notes. That's as far as I, <laughs> I can handle the technology. No, nothing wrong um, with that. Uh, but thank you right. so much for your time but, yeah, and man, en- enjoy your day. You too, Wes. Yeah. We'll catch up with you later. You betcha. Cheers. Thanks, man. Bye. Cheers. What a great conversation with Keith. If you're interested in finding out more, you can find him online at Kootenai Avalanche Courses on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Keith is still able to provide COVID-safe courses throughout the pandemic. Head on over to his website, KootenaiAvalancheCourses.com. You can find the link in the show notes. And while you're down there, Check out some of the offers we have from Wonder Alpine Skis, Hagen Ski Mountaineering, and Social CBD. Just click on the links and use the codes provided. The music in the background is written and recorded by my good mate Chris Kaplinski and the late Daryl Weeks. And of course, a big thanks to Mike T for the artwork. If you like what you hear on the podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcast. Tell a friend. Tell a friend's friend. Tell that friend to tell a friend. And don't forget to help our forecasters wherever you are. When you're out in the mountains, take some pictures. Share what you're finding. If you see any signs of instability, report it. This information helps fill in any data gaps in areas where there may not be a forecaster and inevitably can result in a more accurate forecast for your region. And in the meantime, get out there, make good choices, Be safe and have fun.